Hello and welcome to the History of Voting podcast, brought to you by One Nation Every Vote. One Nation Every Vote is a nonpartisan organization designed to bring you stories and information about voting and why it matters. You can find out more about One V at onev.vote. That is O-N-E-V dot V-O-T-E. This is the final episode in this History of Voting series. The midterm elections are right upon us. I'm recording this on the Friday before the midterms, and we're going to be talking about current issues about voting in America. We started this series before the revolution, talking about how colonial governments held their elections, how American voting happened before there was a United States of America. We took it through the 1800s, where there was the dichotomy of turnout being sky high, but the majority of the population not eligible to vote. We went through Reconstruction, the Progressive Era, Women's Suffrage, the Civil Rights Movement, and Native American voting rights. All those episodes are up there on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to stop this, go back, listen, catch up. Feel free to do that. In each of those episodes, in each of those times, we saw the process of voting contested. Not just between candidates, but between ideas of who should vote and how voting should run. And you might hope that after 230 years and as we're about to elect our 116th Congress, that we would have finally figured out the process of voting. We would have finally come to some understanding about this is the way we're going to vote and this is the way that makes sure it's fair for everyone. But that sadly isn't true. There's still outstanding issues. There are still outstanding questions. So to talk about the state of voting in America today, I spoke with Dr. Martha Croft of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Dr. Croft, thanks very much for being with us uh, today. Uh, just in a few words, how would you phrase the, the state of voting and voting rights in America today and in the context of our history? Uh, are we the easiest way to vote that we've ever had it, or is it worse than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago? What is the historical context of where we are right now? The best answer for that is it depends on what state you live in. Different states have different laws concerning uh, voting rights, and in some states it's easier to vote in than others. And that plays back to our history of our founding, where the founders basically couldn't make a decision in the Constitution about how to set up voting rights, and so they sort of avoided it and left it to the states. And so that's what we see is 50 or 51 or even more, if you want to count the territories, different voting rights regimes. And do we have better rights? I mean, you could look at some states that are setting up easier ways for people to vote, and then some states where the political competition is so tough that strategy and political strategies involve setting up laws, and that sort of trumped old-fashioned mobilization and political campaigning. So, Manipulating the rules has always been a part of the strategy behind winning elections, uh, but arguably it's worse now. But again, it really depends on where you live. What's different now from past history is the diffusion of ideas, the diffusion of laws and information about what sort of laws will help with that strategy is certainly more sophisticated than ever before because of communications technology in this country. And it does seem as if technology is, in some ways, it's making it easier. So we promote TurboVote.org. Uh, it's a website that you just, you type in your name and your address and it tells you how to vote. But technology is also can be used uh, 
to prevent people from votes. So gerrymandering was always an issue in politics. It comes from an old 1800s era governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry. But the 2010 election seemed to have supercharged the idea of gerrymandering because that coincided with when we had data down to the street or the precinct or the ward level of who voted and what party they voted for. So even though gerrymandering had always existed, it was able to have a much greater effect in 2010. And is that something that you think will continue? Or was that a kind of a one-off 2010 had a high level of gerrymandering, but it will diffuse and go back to the old ways in the next years, decades? Oh, no. I, I think it will not diffuse. It will not go back to the old ways because technology on mapping Big data and prediction has gotten more and more sophisticated. It's easy to figure out or at least predict how people are going to vote. And I think that we're going to see more and more in that going forward. It's important, though, to remember that both political parties have engaged in sort of gerrymandering and trying to benefit their own parties, their co-partisans. But it's just that it has been the Republicans that have been, at least in North Carolina, which is one of the, the, my state, and of course one of the states that had such a crazy reputation where gerrymandering is concerned. Right now it's the Republicans who are able to control what's going on. But it's also important to note um, that gerrymandering really, um, until really recently wasn't that much of an issue for the courts. I mean, by really recently, within my lifetime. So in the 1960s, there was a series of Supreme Court decisions um, that determined, for example, that legislative districts needed to be equally sized. And that was sort of in the 1960s. That has created a, a revolution of using the courts to argue against uh, the gerrymandering that has occurred. It's important also to realize that gerrymandering in and of itself, as in configuring the districts, isn't always bad. We used it in the 1990s in North Carolina, for example, to get two minority-majority districts, so two African-American representatives from the state of North Carolina, and that was a big deal. So we used these crazy districts to advance another government interest, and that was in the Voting Rights Act to uh, avoid a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So gerrymandering is much more sophisticated. And moving forward on the whole issue of reapportionment and redistricting, obviously the next big issue is going to be the partisan gerrymandering issue, because this is one where the courts really had avoided uh, saying it's wrong. In North Carolina, for another example, uh, was the Republican redistricting, the Republican gerrymandering that was in the courts a couple of different times. The Fourth Federal Appeals Court said they were unconstitutional. From an administrative perspective, it was pretty controversial because it would have meant if the Supreme Court had taken the case and followed what the Fourth Appeals Court had said, then we would have had to run elections again in this state. Uh, run the primaries again because they would have had to redistrict. Uh, so these are some pretty big issues. I don't think that 2010 is a one-off in your language at all. Now, we hear so much about gerrymandering in American politics, but I don't think I've ever heard it described, or at least certainly not as much, when reading about the politics or an election in any other country. So 
is it something that makes America different than every other country in the world and how we draw our districts and that allows gerrymandering to happen? I mean, I guess my question is, have other countries figured out how to do this, how to fix this problem? The obvious answer is that there's, you know, there's different ways of electing representatives, both proportional representation and um, some different methods. Perhaps if we had at-large districts where we did different methods of voting, like cumulative voting, or we had districts where we used proportional representation or states where we used proportional representation, then uh, gerrymandering wouldn't be that kind of issue. I'm not sure that other countries have really solved this problem. I think other countries just have different problems. But, you know, other countries look to us for a model. And it would be nice if we were actually a reasonable model where people cared and voted, where local turnout was strong, and it is not. It would be nice to say that uh, access, we didn't care what your party was, we just wanted to provide access to voting. And it would be nice to say that uh, we're not trying to use the laws as strategy, but that's just not the history of our country, and that's just not how we've been. And and even when we've tried to reform it, so the the progressive era, which I thought was when we opened up the system, cleaned it up, uh, direct election of senators, the secret ballot coincided with a precipitous drop in turnout from the around 80 percent to around 40 percent over the 30 years uh, after the progressive era. So even when we do reform politics, we can have some unintended side effects. But speaking of reform efforts, are there what, what would you say are the most significant reforms currently being either implemented or discussed relating to voting rights? Well, what I think is really fascinating is automatic voter registration. Several states have adopted automatic voter registration, even though that might have some administrative issues. I mean, it's it's not particularly easy to keep track of people, but it is something that could help, I think, in terms of providing access. The contrary problem, this idea of it's access versus integrity. We want to make it easier for people to vote and harder to cheat in this country, or at least that's the rhetoric. Again, I think that people are using the law as strategy to win an election rather than the old-fashioned campaigning. I firmly believe that things that make it easier to vote are important, but we have problems right now with our voter registration list. There are mistakes also. We have problems with how do we keep those rolls clean? I think that people think we're going to encourage fraud if we don't keep the rolls clean. But then if we take people off the rolls or remove people from the rolls for not voting and not responding to a postcard, and then they decide they want to vote, well, then they're not registered to vote. So... The big reform that I think is interesting is automatic voter registration. The big problem with that is our ability to keep track of the rolls. What about um, voting by mail? The New Yorker had an article about young people not voting who didn't want to vote. But uh, the research shows that the when young people don't vote, the problem that they say more than other generations is that they just don't have time to vote or it doesn't fit into their schedule. You know, if you're you're working a shift job and you're working 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. on Election Day, you don't have time to go out and vote. So voting by mail has been tried or or it's been implemented in Washington state. Is it something that would have a marginal impact or do you think there's a chance that it would have a significant impact nationwide? I think voting by mail would have a marginal impact. I think that these methods that we have been trying for the better part of uh, almost two decades now 
to try and make it easier to vote have made it more convenient for people who are going to vote anyway. Now, can we make voting easier? I mean, let's talk about voting via the internet. There is a whole group of people, a school of thought that that's insecure. There's no way to ensure that that can't be interfered with. And in our current political climate, I think internet voting, it's potentially problematic as well. Right now, we're sort of at a crossroads. Vote by mail, it's been around for a while. Sure, at the margins, it helps. Uh, especially in midterm elections, it probably increases voter turnout. There's at least some evidence for that. But I think you also have to look at the other side. There is sort of a divide on who who would know how to use it. There's also the potential problem of fraud happening in states where you're required to show your voter ID, a government-issued photo ID. You're not necessarily, not always, required to show some sort of ID when you are voting by mail. The possibility of you being able to sell your vote is there because there's not a chain of custody there might be for voting at the polling place on election day or early. And the other thing is that the Help America Vote Act of 2002 said there needed to be voting equipment that could prevent you from overvoting or could alert you when you didn't vote on an office to make sure that you did. There's also the worry that that people are going to make mistakes on their ballots, and there's no way to alert them to double-check their ballots or alert them if there is a potential mistake. When you go to the polling place and vote, on election day or early, you can get such an alert. We have a map that the, uh, the only states where all of their voting machines are less than 10 years old are Maine, New York, Maryland, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Hawaii. So uh, in a lot of places, all voting jurisdictions are using machines that are greater than 10 years old. And and that includes states like Nevada, Georgia, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and then where a majority of the districts are more than 10 years old. That includes California and Florida. So that's that's the problem, right? People worry so much about security. Are we going to upgrade the technology? Well, so I suppose some people would say, yeah, voting on an optical scan ballot is the wave of the future. I'm not sure that's right, but... Uh, Well, I mean, it is the wave of the future. I'm not sure that it is futuristic. I think we need to investigate Internet voting. But, you know, I mean, I've been working in this field a long time, and there's a lot of people that are concerned about the security. That means that people who are working on voting equipment and sort of ballot issues are trying to figure out ways to make it secure. There are some very brilliant people working on that. I'm hoping that they'll come up with something to make that something that's possible. What do you think the future of voting might look like? If you got transported into the year 2040, what would you expect to see when you either walked into a ballot uh, booth or when you heard people talking about how they were going to vote? I think what would surprise me the least is if we still hadn't made progress on getting people to see how important local elections are to their lives. People still pay the most attention to the races that get the most media attention or that they're reading about on social media. And the things that they're talking to their friends about are typically the higher level offices, such that when they walk into the voting booth on election day, they feel like they have done their civic duty if they vote on the higher level offices. And then they go down the ballot and what they find is a bunch of things they don't know about. And then they think, well, I really didn't learn about this. So I have to use either some sort of heuristic, 
like political parties, sort of an information shortcut. Oh, well, I'm a Democrat. I can vote for the Democrat. Or I'm a Republican and I can vote for the Republican. Or they don't vote at all. Well, we see, we may see an increase in the use of different systems of selection. For example, I I think we'd probably see more ranked choice voting in, in a variety of places where you rank the candidates, and then there's a system of uh, eliminating the top choices with the least choices, and then you might get your second choice. Uh, just to, for people that don't know, that was put in place in Maine. Uh, this is the first time they're using it this cycle. They passed it in 2016. And this is the kind of idea where in Florida in 2000, people who voted for Ralph Nader would have chosen either Al Gore or George W. Bush second. And then when Ralph Nader, he would have been eliminated because he was in the last place. And then their votes would have gone from Nader to either Gore or Bush, depending on their second choice. Oh, right. Their their second place vote there would have mattered. And probably Al Gore would have won. Maybe Al Gore would have won. I think that's um, some of the research. Although George George uh, H.W. Bush would have said that that system would have helped him in 1992 with uh, Ross Perot voters. I don't know if that would be true, but I'm pretty sure that's what uh, the Bush 92 campaign believed. That one I haven't seen studied, but it wouldn't surprise me. I think more and more places are talking about that form of election. I mean, it's it's not just the California thing, as you know, as you mentioned, Maine is certainly using ranked choice voting for its federal elections this year. And there are several cities. It's worth looking at uh, fairvote.org to look at some of their research about it if uh, people are interested in, in uh, learning more about ranked choice voting. Do you think that... Uh radical changes to our voting structure might occur within the next 20 years. I'm thinking about the abolition of the Electoral College or changing the Senate to have um, 50 districts that are of equal population or or adding new states that would change it. Do you think that is, is likely to happen or is it uh, at least an outside chance that something that drastic might come up in the next 20 years? So I think probably what's more likely is sort of marginal changes in the Electoral College. Maybe if the states can start talking and we can manage to get some sort of agreement to vote for whoever won the majority of the votes, there'll be the small at the margins changes in terms of the Electoral College, like a compact among states that if this person won the majority of votes in the country, then whatever our state's votes in the Electoral College, we're going to vote for the majority winner uh, or in ways that are more just agreements rather than major constitutional changes. I, I would not be surprised if we added other states. I wouldn't be surprised if if we added Puerto Rico. But I think, gosh, the Senate. Okay, here's my answer on the Senate. As long as it's helping somebody, then I think that it's going to stay the way it is. As long as the and as long as it's helping somebody and that somebody has political power, it's definitely going to stay the way it is. In the next 20 years, anyway, 20 years is, I mean, in the entire history of this country is not very long. And, you know, that's how long I've been working in political science. Have we seen dramatic changes in that 20 years? No, no, we haven't. But uh, thank you very much for speaking with us. Sure, Um, anytime. Happy to help. And hopefully, I mean, I would love for people to be more interested in local elections. And I know there's a lot of good people working in that area. So hopefully I'm wrong about that. 
Hopefully. So. Well, we cross our fingers and that on Tuesday we have sky-high turnout for all races up and down the ballot. Thank you. Thank you so right, much. Thank you. All right. Bye. My thanks again to Dr. Martha Croft of UNC Charlotte for speaking with us. You know, going into this podcast, I thought I knew a lot about American politics and American history. Not that I knew everything, of course, but I consider myself pretty knowledgeable, and I figured that this podcast was going to be an uplifting story of how this country expanded voting rights over the centuries, how people fought for the right to vote, how they won, and how we basically got maybe not a perfectly straight line, but a generally straight line from 1789 to today. But doing research for these episodes, and I should add the, the great research and production help of our team of Eve Gleason, Riley Doak, and Shivangi Bhatia, and then speaking with all the academics who took the time to talk with us, a lot more about voting came to the surface. I didn't know, for example, that women in New Jersey could vote until 1808. I didn't know that the civil rights movement was preceded by such a long period of intra-party battles and that campaigning that went into the 1960 election would set the groundwork for what would happen later. I didn't know that the progressive era, which is remembered as when politics got cleaned up, made more professional, made more institutionalized, also saw a precipitous drop in turnout. So as we're cleaning up politics on the one hand, it was also coinciding with people being excluded from it. Throughout our history, voting has been the foundational element of our government. The Civil War was won, really, when Abraham Lincoln won re-election in 1864. That was, in many ways, the true turning point of the Civil War. And a large part of Lincoln's victory in 1864 was the vote of soldiers in the Union Army. And a large part of that vote was only able to happen because 19 northern states passed legislation allowing soldiers to cast absentee ballots. It is not unreasonable to say that legislation about voting and expanding voting rights was a big reason why this country made it through the Civil War and in many ways why it still exists. But even with the importance of voting being so clear from that election, and even with all of the movements to expand and protect the right to vote, we still have a voting apparatus in this country that is highly uneven and highly dependent on where you live and what are the traditions in that area. States get to decide who votes, and some states make it easier or harder to vote. In 37 states, the state legislatures draw the districts, allowing gerrymandering to happen that can make votes more or less important to the outcomes. But despite all that, change is possible. That is the message that consistently came through every bit of research and, and every interview for this podcast. Change in our voting procedures are possible, and they often come through voting. They come by electing officials who promise voting reforms or by showing the power of a constituency that sets the groundwork for later reforms. So wherever you are on Tuesday, November 6th, please get out and vote and get your friends and family to vote. It is the easiest way to make your voice heard, to make your opinion matter, and to choose your member of Congress, your state legislators, your city councilors, even your school board. Throughout our history, elections have been decided by just a few votes. And it's predicted that 60% of registered voters won't even bother to show up on Tuesday. So your vote and your voice can make a difference. If you're still unsure about where or how to vote, you can go to vote.org, TurboVote. I mean, you can just Google where do I vote, and it will tell you. Now, for other stories about how voting matters, you can check out 1v.vote or follow us on social media. We are 1v underscore vote on Twitter. One Nation Every Vote on Facebook, and 1V.Vote on Instagram. So thanks so much for listening. 
If you liked it, please let us know. Please tell your friends and family. Make a recommendation. Give us a review where you get your podcast. The editor for this episode was Spencer Curry. The producer was Eve Gleason. I'm Chris Oates. Thank you so much for listening, and get out to those polls. Thank you.